Well, good morning and welcome to our service. Those of you here in our sanctuary, those of you joining us online, and Gloria Valls, thank you for that beautiful reading in Swahili of our passage today. It is so good to have all of you with us, and uh, again, thank you also those of you joining us online. I'm David Beatty, and uh, if you were not here last week, it may be I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, since some of you are new, began coming over the summer, and I was out for a little, uh, between two and three months, and it's so great to be back with you uh, after my sabbatical. I'd like to take just a few minutes at the beginning of our service today to say a word about what we call our vision frame. You'll see the vision frame on the screens in front of you, and I think understanding our vision frame is one of the best ways to understand who we are as a church. Think of the vision frame as a, a window frame through which you are looking into the future. And in the future, you see our vision 2025. This is a full page document that describes what we hope by God's power and the work of his spirit, our church will look like, will be like in the year 2025. It is a vision that is driven by discipleship, that is spiritual formation, resulting in greater outreach and missions uh, locally and beyond. As you look around the frame, you see our mission statement on uh, the right side, our discipleship pathway, the steps we, we hope people will take in their process of spiritual growth. And then on the left side, seven values. I'd like to just speak to one of those values for a moment, the one that says mission-minded. I think if we were rewording it today, I might uh, strike the word minded and put mission-driven because missions locally and beyond is, is really at the very heartbeat of who we are uh, as a church. Now, we, we uh, sought the Lord and, and came up with this vision frame prior to our Beyond campaign. And those of you who were here three years ago know that our Beyond campaign was involved with some building expansion, some new areas for our children, some renovation of the building. And we decided to take 10% of the receipts from those funds that came in for that capital expansion and improvement and to invest them beyond the walls of our church. And because of your great generosity, your giving, we've been able to support capital projects here locally and around the world. And I want to tell you about just a couple of those that um, have taken place recently. The Beyond Our Walls team recently uh, was able to give a gift of $25,000 to City Lights Ministry as they are purchasing a new uh, building for their location. Yes, uh, thank you and thank the Lord for that. Also, as Salem Pregnancy Care Center is, has moved into a new building, we were able to do a $20,000 gift to help with that. Uh, many other such gifts that we've been able to do, and I cannot thank you enough. Now, when I got back from my sabbatical, one of the most exciting things was to read the minutes from the uh, missions meetings about the various gifts that had been distributed through our general fund giving around the year because there was a great deal that had been, been done there. Uh, one of those was a, a, a smaller gift to a project that Pastor Sonny Flowers, uh, Stuart Mock, uh, through his ministry and Tim Gupton were able to participate in Kenya. I think Sonny sent us a few pictures you'll see on the screen. They were there just over two weeks, and in that very short time, were able to help oversee and assist with the completion 
of a building for a ministry there. It's remarkable to me how quickly that went up. I don't think we'd see a building go up quite so quickly here, would we, Stuart? In just two, two and a half weeks, uh, we were able to invest money from our general fund in that. And then next week, Pastor West Tuttle is going to be up here. He's going to share with you some really exciting stuff that is happening in our unreached people group where there is now language translation and other stuff happening. All of this is a result of your, your giving, um, and I thank you. Thank you so very much. Now, speaking of missions, before we begin the message today, I want us to join our hearts in prayer for Haiti. And uh, as you know, a number of missionaries were kidnapped there recently. The country is really in turmoil. We need to pray for that country. So would you join me as we pray? Father, we come <clears throat> in the name of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the one in whose hand is all authority in heaven and on earth, so that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But Lord, we do not yet see that. <clears throat> today we see the nations raging and in turmoil, and we ask that you would stretch out your hand today, Lord, especially over the nation of Haiti, and bring your peace. We pray for the peace, the care, the protection of those missionaries and their children, that you would return them safely, that you would work in the hearts of their captors, Lord, that you would give the wisdom needed and the assistance needed to bring about peace and a turning of hearts to you in that country. And now, fathers, we turn to your word. We pray the prayer of Psalm 119, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things out of your law. Teach us your ways, Lord, we ask in Jesus' holy name, amen. Well, we're in one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament this morning, Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 is very significant in the book of Romans because it provides a turning point in the book of Romans. Chapters 1 through 11 in the book of Romans lays out a very systematic and logical explanation of what we call the gospel, what God has done for us through Jesus Christ, his dying on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, how he's provided salvation for us through the work of Jesus, salvation that's received not based on our religious efforts or deeds or works, but through faith in Jesus alone. God's provided that for us. And now as we begin chapter 12, the Apostle Paul's talking about living it out. How one who has embraced the salvation provided through Jesus lives a life before God. To quickly review what we looked at last week, we saw first that our surrender to God is a response, a response to his mercy in the gospel. The chapter began with these words, the Apostle Paul writing, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, therefore, referring to what has gone before, what God has accomplished for us, the greatness of his work providing salvation through Jesus. Because of that, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, your worship response to God is simply a response of faith to what he's done in providing for your salvation. What Paul's going to tell us to do in Romans chapter 12 
It's not a list of to-do things in order to gain salvation. It's a description of how a believer should live who has already received God's salvation. It's not our trying to reach God. It's an act of worship in response to God's already having reached us. We love him because he first loved us. And I stress the importance of understanding last week that regeneration comes before transformation. Regeneration simply means being born again, born from above. Sometimes we call it being saved, having embraced the salvation provided by Jesus. That's the starting place. And it's from that point that as our minds are renewed, our lives are transformed. So Paul went on to explain, as we noted last week, that our lives can be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Having been brought to faith in Jesus, we now live out this process as our minds are renewed, studying God's truth, our lives over time are transformed. Now, we focused last week on the, the great importance of having our minds made new, our thinking made new by exposure to God's Word, because God's Word is invested with His great grace and power. God's Word is depicted as light, the psalmist says. The entrance of your words brings light. God's Word is depicted as water, and the Scripture says that Jesus washes, sanctifies his church with the water of his word. What that tells us is that if we fill our minds with things that are contrary to God's will and, and ways, there's hope for us. By exposing our minds to God's word, our minds can be renewed. They can be uh, made new. We can think differently about life. And this process occurs over time. Now, today we pick up in verses 9 through 21, and I want to stress again, because Paul's going to give a lot of commands here. This is not a list of things to do in order to be a Christian. You become a Christian by placing faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Paul's now describing what a transformed life looks like as you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind? What does your life look like? How do you live that out? What is the evidence of a transformed life? And one of the key words that describes a transformed life is the word love. Love for God and love for His ways. And so the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, let love be genuine. When he, when he gives us this simple phrase, he, he uses a word that literally means without hypocrisy. Let there be no hypocrisy, not only in your love for others, but in your love for God. Let it be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Notice he doesn't say abhor who is evil, but what? Evil deeds, evil things. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. This is the essence of what it means to really take on God's mindset. The fear of the Lord is described as hatred of evil. As we grow to know God better and love Him more, increasingly we come to love the things that He loves 
and to hate the things that God hates, evil things. This occurs over time in our lives. Maybe you can remember when you became a Christian. Those of you who uh, can remember when you came to know the Lord, you know that you're a Christian. Maybe you remember that time and uh, you, you, you put your faith in Jesus. And uh, at first, not a whole lot changed in your life. You, you watched the same movies. You looked at the same things on your computer. But as you begin exposing your mind to God's word, to God's truth, you begin to see, hey, I don't think I'll watch that show anymore. I don't think I'll go to that website anymore. I don't think I'll play that video game anymore. Because as your mind becomes renewed, you begin seeing things from God's perspective. Things that honor Him, things that please Him. Our love for God is expressed in loving what He loves and hating the things that He hates. Paul goes on in verses 11 and 12 to talk about our zeal for the Lord. And he says, do not be lazy or slothful in your zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Notice the words there. Fervency, service, joy, hope, patience, prayer. He's talking about a zealous faith. Let your love for God continue to grow. Sometimes those of us who've been Christians a long time need to be jolted into a little more zeal by someone who is brand new to the faith. This has been my experience. I have a, a, a nephew who just over a year ago came to know Jesus, and his was a very definite and dramatic conversion. I'm really proud of him. He is on fire for the Lord, <laughs> going out witnessing to people everywhere on the streets and all this sort of thing. And, um, you know, my wife said to me, he reminds me of you when you were that way. You used to be that way. I said, used to be? Wait a minute. He's zealous and I'm not. I have to confess my sins here. Last, last uh, Christmas season, it was in December, our, my larger family, I grew up in Charlotte. We were having a family dinner down in Charlotte one night. And uh, Beth and I, whenever we go see family in Charlotte, especially in the evening, you know, you got to allow time for the drive. You never know what the traffic's going to be. So we, we allowed plenty of time. And we got to this place. Uh, there was this room where this dinner was going to be. And Beth and I got there early. We didn't hit much traffic. And we got there 20, 30 minutes early. So we're in this empty room. And there's a, a server there. Um, and so... I struck up a conversation with him. I like meeting people I don't know and talk to people I don't know and, and, and generally looking for an opportunity to maybe share something about the Lord with him. And this guy and I really hit it off. We talked. Uh, my wife doesn't mind this. She's used to this. She, she knows I like talking to people. We talked probably 20, 25 minutes. We talked about real estate in Charlotte. He wanted to buy a house. I didn't say one word about the Lord. Well, all of my family started coming, and we began to gather together. I saw my nephew, and he said hello. And a few minutes later, he came back to me and said, Hey, David, Uncle David, um, you see that guy over there? I said, Yeah, I talked to him for about half an hour. He said, I just shared the gospel with him. I said, You weren't over there three minutes. He said, Yeah, I told him you were a pastor. He didn't say one word about the Lord. Well, my wife said, you used to be that way. I said, don't say I used to be that way. Say I'm, I'm becoming that way again. Zeal. 
Be fervent in spirit. Don't be slothful in zeal. Love for God. Love for His ways. Furthermore, as our, our minds are being transformed, Paul gives another list of commands that have to do with love. Love one another. Now, here the Apostle Paul, in this little phrase, uses a Greek word that I bet all of you know. If you know this word, you know a word of New Testament Greek, and it's the word Philadelphia. Phila, love, adelphos, a word for brother, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? Philadelphia is the Greek New Testament word for brotherly love. But interestingly, in this one phrase, love one another with brotherly affection, Paul adds the phila part in again to an additional word. So we could understand it to mean loving dearly, love one another with brotherly love. Have a great love for one another. This is Jesus' command. This is one of the greatest evidences of growing Christian maturity, love for other believers. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. By this, all will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. I misquoted that verse. I need to go back and quote it again. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. As I have, 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 have loved you, that you also love one another. I left out the most important part. We're to love one another the way Jesus has loved us. That sets the bar very high, I think. But that's the call, is our lives are being transformed. This is the evidence of a transformed life. Love one another. And then Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. Consider others better than yourselves. Esteem others more highly than you esteem yourself. In regard to our relationship with one another, he says in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know, I tend to think that in the church we do a little better job of the second one than the first. That is, we find it a little easier to weep with those who weep, to grieve with those who are grieving. We understand grief. It can be hard. It can be serious. It's not always so easy to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Your friend got some great promotion you had hoped to get. It's a little harder to rejoice with her. Your friend gets some great blessing you wish would come to your life. It may be a little harder to rejoice with that person. It all has to do with putting the other above ourselves, outdoing one another in showing honor, esteeming others above ourselves. Evidence of a transformed life, love for one another. Now, as Paul lays out these evidences of a transformed life, they, they tend it's picture it kind of like a, a stone in a pond, and it's, it's going outward. The ripples are going outward. Further speaks of love for those in need, including outsiders. And we read these words in verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. When you see the word saint in the New Testament, it's not talking about a special class of Christian. A saint in New Testament biblical terminology is anyone who is a believer, anyone who has embraced God's salvation through faith in Jesus. You, you read this in the Apostle Paul's letters. He writes, to the saints who are at Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. So it's not a special category of Christians. All true believers are saints. It, saints are not those who don't ever sin because we do. 
Saints are those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, made righteous by him so that we can be called God's holy ones, his saints. The very word speaks to the completeness of what Jesus did for his own on the cross. And in this verse, Paul is telling us to be particularly aware of the needs of other believers and to be God's instruments in meeting those needs and furthermore, to seek to show hospitality. Paul uses here another Greek word that includes that first philo part that means love. It's the word philozania, which is a New Testament word for hospitality. It literally means love for strangers, love for outsiders. In biblical times, there were not you know, an abundance of hotels like we have today. And you see this when you read the letters of Paul, you know, he's going to visit somebody. He says, prepare a room for me. Traveling missionaries, traveling believers depended on the kindness and hospitality of other believers. And it was a high mark of Christian maturity to show hospitality. In fact, in the qualifications for the office of elder given in the New Testament, found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1, both of those lists of qualifications list one of the qualifications as hospitable, someone who's given to hospitality. In our church, um, we often have missionaries coming here. Sometimes we'll have several at the same time on a special missions weekend. I want to encourage you, if you've never had a missionary in your home, particularly those of you who have kids, one of the greatest things you can do for your kids is to let them sit around a table with somebody who lives in another country and serves in another culture. Maybe they even have kids that your kids will meet. That will have an impact on their lives, I assure you. I wish my wife and I had done more of that when our kids were small. Love for those in need, particularly those outside, those in need of our hospitality, seek to show hospitality. It gets a little more challenging now. The circle continues to move outward as this section of Scripture teaches us that one evidence of a transformed life is the humble pursuit of peace with others. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Why would the Apostle Paul, why would God, by the Holy Spirit working through Paul, give us a command like this? Associate with the lowly. Don't be wise in your own sight. I think it's because we have a tendency as human beings to, to only want to associate with people who are like ourselves. And oftentimes to see ourselves as a little wiser, a little smarter, perhaps a little more wealthy, perhaps a little better educated, whatever it may be. See ourselves a little better. The way of the transformed life of a follower of Jesus is not that way. It's to associate with the lowly. It's never to be wise in your own estimation. It's never to be haughty. And it's to seek harmony with others. And then Paul gives us this Simple statement which says so much, if possible, if possible, 
So far as it depends on you, live feasibly with all. I am so glad he added the words, if possible. <laughs> if possible. Because at least it's been my experience, it's just not always possible. There are some people with whom you can do everything you can do to make amends and to reconcile. And because of their issues and particular problems that they have, may not be possible to always fully reconcile with them. But Paul says, and it's clear he means we make a significant effort in this, <clears throat> if possible. So far as it depends on you, do all you can do. For your part, do everything you can do to live peaceably with other people. Now, does this mean you can't address issues that need to be addressed, hard issues? Does this mean if you see somebody embezzling at your company, you can't address that person? Not at all. Not at all. The Bible teaches us to speak the truth in love, but it would also call us to do, a, do that with humility, seeking to see anywhere we ourselves may be at fault, communicating in love and grace with a goal of reconciliation. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And, and listen, this is more of an ongoing project <laughs> in a marriage, I think. Perhaps with your children, too. The closer the relationship, the more challenging this can be. Those of you who are married know that there are often times to maintain harmony. You've got to humble yourself. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to put aside your self-centeredness. You've got to put aside the need you feel to always be the one who's right, to always be the one who's in charge or in control. Humble yourself before one another. One more word about peacemaking. This whole thing of peacemaking between believers is precious and critically important in the sight of God. You may remember that Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. To be called sons of God simply means they're being like God. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. Through Christ, God the Father brought about reconciliation with us, made peace with us, broke down the wall, the dividing wall, between Jew and Gentile, Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. And so when you take a role, maybe in your small group, maybe in the church, maybe between two friends, maybe even in your own family, of being a peacemaker, you're doing it the way God prescribes. You're doing something that I think is near and dear to his heart. Well, it gets even harder now. Because now Paul's going to teach us that we need to be overcoming evil with good. And he's going to talk about the way a person living out a transformed life relates not only to those with whom it's difficult to get along, but those who are considered enemies, those who are considered persecutors. And he teaches us that an evidence of a transformed life is overcoming evil with good. We see this <clears throat> a couple times in the... Uh, final verses of Romans chapter 12. First he writes, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Now, 
We don't have to look very far to see where Paul got that idea. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6 and verse 27, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Wow. Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, To bless is to speak well of, to speak good about those who curse you. And to pray for those who mistreat you. Apparently here, I think, Paul's talking about unbelievers. And we respond to their hatred, he's teaching, with persecution. And he goes on to write these words in verse 19. You'll see them on the screen. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God... For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, next week, when we're looking at Romans chapter 13, we'll see that one of the ways that God has set in order in societies where there is government, where there is law enforcement, where there's military, is the exacting of vengeance through order. As we'll see in Romans 13 and verse 4, um, he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. My, my point here is simply that this does not mean a believer can never appeal to law enforcement. If we got to uh, church here this morning and there was some group that was protesting our church and wanted to keep us from worshiping, and they had pulled up big trucks to the entrances of the church so nobody could get here, What would we do? We'd pick up the phone and call the sheriff's office, police department, law enforcement, have them come get the trucks out of the way so we could worship the Lord here. We would use the means God has set in order here, of course. Paul is talking here about personal vengeance, and he says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, the first thing we want to see about this uh, section, this uh, feeding your enemy, giving him something to drink, it's a quote from the book of Proverbs. comes right out of Proverbs 25, where we read, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. What a strange couple of verses, huh? Well, commentators suggest different meanings, um, but the one that makes the most sense to me and seems to be um, held by a few commentators is that this idea of burning coals on the head refers to an ancient Egyptian ritual in which a penitent person, that is a repentant person, would carry burning coals, presumably in a tray, on their head as a sign of the genuineness of their repentance. Something they'd done wrong, some crime they've committed, they repented. Burning coals show the genuineness of their repentance. And so, our part is, if that's true, it's a sign of repentance, our part is doing kind deeds that may lead a person to repentance. So that if your enemy's hungry, give him some food. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. 
You may well, by your kind deeds, your acts of kindness, bring about his repentance. Now, does this idea appear anywhere else that kind deeds can lead to repentance? It does. It does in the book of Romans, the very book we're studying, in fact. In Romans chapter 2, in verse 4, the Apostle Paul writes these words. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? We say it again. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And it seems to me the Apostle Paul is telling us to treat others this way. Acts of kindness may well be used by God to lead them to repentance. Bless those who curse you. Don't take the vengeance into your own hands, but rather show kindness. Overcome evil with good. The Lord will reward you. What might happen? Any biblical examples of anybody doing something like this? I think I can think of one. Well, I can think of more than one. I can think of Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. But in the New Testament book of Acts, we have the account of a man named Stephen. In Acts chapter 6, Stephen was chosen as a deacon in the early Christian church, but he did more than deaconing. He went out to serve and minister to others, and great signs and wonders were done through Stephen. He preached the gospel. A crowd gathered and sensed at what he was doing. In Acts chapter 7, verse 58 says, They cast him out of the city and stoned him. That's a horrible way to put somebody to death. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, this was Saul of Tarsus, a Jewish religious leader of the day. And I don't want to be overly gruesome, but the reality is they laid down their garments at his feet because he was standing far enough away that their garments would not be spattered by Stephen's blood as they undertook the horrible deed of pounding him to death with rocks. Saul, giving approval to the act, was standing back. And as they were stoning Stephen, he he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then this is what's interesting to me. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice. Now, why is Scripture specific in saying he cried out with a loud voice? Could it be that because Saul of Tarsus was standing at some distance back watching over the garments, God just wanted to be sure he heard this? cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Wow. Imagine somebody stoning him to death. His enemies, his persecutors, he's, I release them. Don't hold this act against them, Father. He said this, he fell asleep. That is, he died. That's a way of saying he dies. Next verse reads, And Saul, Saul of Tarsus, approved of his execution. But something happens to Saul. The very next chapter of the book of Acts, he's 
traveling on the Damascus Road, continuing his persecutions of God's people. He sees a great light. He falls to the ground. He hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's Jesus speaking. And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. To persecute his people is to persecute him. But rising into the city and you'll be told what you're to do. Well, we'll, we'll Saul becomes a believer. Uh, his name will soon be changed to Paul. And he begins preaching right away, proclaiming Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. Stephen didn't get to see it, did he? At least not on this side. Maybe on the other side he did. But his kindness certainly may have been used by God to lead someone to repentance. And by the way, that Saul of Tarsus is the one who wrote the book of Romans that we're studying right now. He wrote these very words about overcoming evil with good, showing kindnesses to our enemies. Well, as we reflect on this passage, number one, I want to ask three questions by way of personal application. Number one, most important one is this. Have I responded to God's mercy in the gospel? Remember, it's not about trying to obey a bunch of rules. It's about regeneration, being born again, embracing by faith Jesus Christ as your Lord, your Savior, receiving what he did on the cross. Have I responded to God's mercy in the gospel? And then secondly, am I actively pursuing the renewing of my mind? If you read these things in Romans chapter 9 about loving enemies and being a peacemaker, and it seems a little bit daunting, don't get hung up on all the actions. Focus on the renewal of your mind. These things are the outflow of a renewed mind. Get your mind into the Word of God. As the Holy Spirit works in you through God's Word, these things will increasingly become realities in your life. The Holy Spirit does the changing. And frankly, it's a lifetime process. And I have to say, there are plenty of setbacks along the way. God's patient with us. He's forbearing. And then finally, is God calling me to overcome evil with good in some relationship, something I'm facing right now. Let's pray about that this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement of the scripture by which we have hope, and I ask that you would encourage your people today. I pray your Holy Spirit would speak to each of us in those areas in which we need to hear from you. If there's someone we should forgive to forgive. If there's someone with whom we need reconciliation, that you would guide us in that pathway, that we would be peacemakers. And above all, we would be people who show forth the gospel of Jesus Christ by the love we have for you, Lord, and the love we have for one another. And we pray in your great name. Amen.